welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club. We are reading G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and we are on week three looking at the third chapter, which is rather dramatically called The Suicide of Thought. Now, last week I talked to you from a half-packed cottage in Oxford. I was recording on my mother's computer because my mic and computer, I wasn't sure which one it was, but I figured out it was my computer, had broken. There were barking dogs, um, and I was in a tizzy. Now, almost all of those circumstances have changed, except for me being in a tizzy. I am still in a tizzy, but now, instead of being in a half-packed Oxford cottage, I am in a half-unpacked new flat in St. Andrews. Instead of barking dogs and lawn mowers, there are moaning seagulls, which you may hear from time to time, as I haven't really set up my sound studio, not that I... And by sound studio, I mean a closet in which I, I set up all my recording equipment. I am um, I'm doing this right now on the floor of my new room in the flat, surrounded by uh, unpacked, half-packed, unpacked boxes. And I'm tired, but I'm excited for a good new year. Last week was really eventful. It was very sad to say goodbye to Oxford, to my mother who flew back to America after a year and a half being here, supporting me and my sister and doing work here, um, sending Sarah off to her curacy. Her husband was just ordained to the Church of England. Um, it was a very eventful week, but I'm just feeling very thankful and very sleep deprived, but very excited for what will come. And I think the fact that I'm currently doing this podcast on my floor, surrounded by boxes, is a true testament how, to how devoted I am to the literary life. <laughs> so um, whatever madness your week has brought you, I sympathize and I am excited to pause in the moment of madness to enjoy and talk about this deep and difficult book. Now, I have to say, if you have made it this far, congratulations. I am proud of you. You have been dedicated and you've made it through what I think are the two hardest chapters of this book. Last week, I gave you the advice to kind of just lean into the madness that is Chesterton. Don't try too hard to write out what it is he's arguing or make sure that you can understand it. You're smart. You've got this. And what he's doing is trying to get at, um, he's trying to get at difficult things. This is what I wanted to talk about this week is that uh, I think what Chesterton's really trying to do is trying to say, what are the obstacles and difficulties we have, particularly in our time and our context and our moment in history, that make it difficult for us to pursue and discover truth about ourselves, about the world, about morality, and about God. And the thing that's difficult about that <clears throat> is that all of those things are, are like our eyesight. They are how we see and interpret the world. And I remember when I first got glasses, I and I think this is a ubiquitous experience among people who wear glasses, um, you you look through the glasses and you're, you're all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, um, houses have bricks, trees have leaves. You can see people's freckles when you sit across the table from them. There was a whole world that was hidden or distorted that you couldn't really explain to someone until you put on glasses and suddenly have your vision fixed. And so I think part of the reason that these chapters are kind of difficult for Chesterton is that he is trying to explain why the way we're seeing the world might be distorted and the particular ways in which it might be distorted. But without putting on clear glasses, it's hard to understand that. 
And so uh, what you have tromped through is his best attempt to understand kind of the weaknesses of the modern way of thinking. And the way that you can tell that is that in this chapter, um, I thought I would write down and just mention all the different names that he drops in this chapter. And I know that for some of you that may seem kind of like, well, why is he mentioning these if we don't know them? But I think part of it's because he was writing very specifically as a journalist at his time to people. And so he was trying to use the names of people who would be influential. And but also he's trying to give an account for modern thought up to that point. So in this chapter, we have Blatchford, H.G. Wells, Descartes, Nietzsche, Mark Twain, Bellick, John Davidson, Schopenhauer, uh, George Bernard Shaw, Renan, Anatole France, and Jeanne d'Arc, or as we Americans would call her, Joan of Arc. And the reason I run through all these names is that I think that Chesterton, and he actually says this at the end of the chapter, what he's trying to do, and he calls it, um, let me find the page, here he says, here I end, thank God, the first and dullest business of this book, the rough review of recent thought. So he's trying to kind of give an account for why we see the world the way it is and how that might hamper our pursuit of and discovery of, of orthodoxy or of discovering England, discovering the truth. Um, and he, he describes this as kind of looking at a huge pile of books and the ways that these have shaped us. He says, in front of me, as I close this page, is a pile of modern books that I have been turning over for the purpose, a pile of ingenuity and a pile of futility. And he describes it as kind of being able to see the train wreck of modern thought, the things that have hampered us, the things that have made it difficult for us to understand. And um, I do think that Chesterton thinks that we have a particular problem in the modern age um, with, and with some of the things he describes. But I think, uh, I don't want it to be a kind of reverse chronological snobbery, and I don't think he would either. I think that he would say that every time has its own kind of, um, has its own difficulties and impairments and its ability to pursue and think about truth. And, um, that ours, and then in some ways is kind of cyclical, because he describes the ways that we regard the world as being reminiscent of, for instance, other decadence societies as they came to uh, kind of a close, like uh, Rome. All this to say, though, if it feels like these two chapters have been kind of dense, it's partially because they are. Chesterton is trying to give an account uh, in two short chapters in about 20 pages for the ways that we see the world and why it's difficult. And he's trying to smush in there Nietzsche and Descartes and Wells and Shaw. And uh, so if you have made it through and you think you have some idea of what Chesterton has done, well done, feel proud of yourself. I'm proud of you. And then let's press on to the uh, more fun chapters of this book. One of my favorite chapters will be next week. And something else I wanted to encourage all of you in is that even if you don't think that you are retaining all of this, I find that I retain much more than I think I do. You know, when you are working out, if you were to try to become stronger, you you can't just do what your body does naturally. You have to push yourself a little bit further than you normally would. And as you slowly do that, you build up resistance. You, you stretch the muscle, you tear the muscle so that it can be built back. And I think that the same is true of our intellect. When you stretch the muscle of understanding, when you read books that are a little bit harder, than you would normally read. It's stretching the intellectual muscle and you will begin to see that you're actually stronger and capable of understanding more than you thought you were. And so I hope that uh, this will be an exercise and an experience of that. And I hope that what I can tell you today will help you kind of understand what is happening in this chapter. 
Something else is, in the future, I'm hoping that if you are, you find yourself at a dinner party, as one does, uh, you can whip out some of these arguments, these ideas, these names, these histories that he brings up, and feel like you have a general kind of notion of what they are, what they mean, and how they might relate to how we see the world. That's kind of one of my goals for you. So with all of that said at the beginning, oh, I wanted to start actually after all that with a quick anecdote, which I learned recently and was rather delighted by. Many of my Patreon supporters will know that I have been reading for fun in my off moments, because it's been a very kind of demanding couple of weeks. I have been for fun reading Dorothy Sayers' wonderful mystery novel, um, The Gaudy Night, which you should definitely get a copy of if you want some light summer uh, murder mysteries to read. It's all about Oxford, so that was a fun thing to read too as I went. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was a Christian and an author and a mystery novelist, really delightful, and she was very inspired by G.K. Chesterton. And very Hulluit, I am positive. Hulluit? Oh my gosh, I'm sure that I'm totally mispronouncing this, and if you're listening to this, Miri, I'm sure you will be laughing out loud. Uh, one of the editors at Plow Magazine recently told me that Dorothy Sayers named her overstuffed armchair after G.K. Chesterton, which I found to be very touching and very amusing, and I thought might be a fun way to open up this podcast. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's chapter. And as usual, the way that I will do this is that I shall try to provide kind of a background of the chapter. I'll try to review it, do a quick summary, and then I'll tell you three things that I kind of took away from the chapter. And then I will open up discussion for you all so that you can go and share your ideas and your thoughts about this chapter. Also, a final thing, something that I have been really enjoying has been picking out bits that I really enjoy from the chapters, um, particularly beautiful quotes or passages. And um, I've often said that I think that G.K. Chesterton would have made a merry menace on Twitter. He has very quotable bits. And it has also been really fun to see which bits you all enjoy, which quotes stuck out to you, which things stuck in your imagination. So I would encourage you in the comments when we discuss it, but also on social media, on Twitter or on Instagram, if you post the quotes and then put hashtag reading with joy, um, I like to follow that hashtag and see what you're reading, what you're enjoying, and other people can as well. So that's just a thought. Pick out your favorite Chesterton quotes, post them to hashtag reading with joy. And now, having rambled for a suitable amount of time, let's dive into this week's summary of the chapter. So Chesterton begins this chapter by talking about the trouble with virtues being divorced from each other. And this has a very kind of ancient history, um, this idea, which goes back to Aristotle. Now, Aristotle said that virtues had to be in relationship to each other. Now, in the classical mind, by which I mean kind of antiquity and Greek and Roman thought, there were four main virtues, or what have come to be called cardinal virtues, which then when Christians um, started to kind of do more work and combined the, the history of thought before Christianity and, and inc incorporated that into Christian thought, they then added three virtues, which are faith, hope, and love, of course, from, is that, um, I believe it's, first Corinthians, but the four cardinal virtues were prudence, courage, temperance, and justice. And Aristotle said that any of these um, in isolation from each other would actually become a vice. So you could see this as the example of thinking about um, courage. If courage, which we think of as um, 
the ability to kind of go forward. It's also talked about as forbearance, strength, endurance, um, the ability to kind of push forward, do something courageous or brave. If courage were not tempered by prudence, it could become foolhardiness. So if somebody were only courageous, they might um, do things that were brave, but those brave things wouldn't be good because they were stupid. And a good example of this would be, um, there are many marvelous and wonderful um, teenage boys, I know this from having had brothers, who are full of the virtue of courage. But because they haven't yet developed the virtue of of either prudence, which is the ability to kind of discern whether or not something would be wise to do, and also temperance, which is restraint or self-control or discretion, um, they end up doing stupid, foolhardy things because one virtue is overdeveloped and the other virtues are underdeveloped. And so in that case, then what was a virtue actually becomes a vice. And totally apart from the rest of this chapter, I think this is a very good thing for us to keep in mind. How can we sometimes have developed a, a virtue in ourselves which, when it's divorced from other virtues, can become something that actually hinders us? And what are the things that we overvalue in culture? What good virtues do we overvalue to the damage or destruction even of other virtues? So that's just a fun thing to think about. Um, but in this specific case, Chesterton aligns that with the virtue of humility. And he talks about how humility is a good thing, but in our time, we have almost glorified intellectual humility to the point that it becomes a vice because we're no longer able to be humble in a way that leads us to knowledge. He says that when it comes to intellect, we have kind of so, we've become so humble, so unsure of our ability to believe or know or come to truth in any way. And he juxtaposes this new kind of intellectual humility with the old intellectual humility, saying, for the old humility made a man doubtful of his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. So basically what he's saying is that um, this humility which we claim, which, which claims to be kind of skeptical or agnostic about various things, rather than being skeptical or agnostic about our ability to reason, it is skeptical and agnostic about the idea that there is anything we can reason about. Um, and he says, this is kind of what he's setting up as he's about to explain this. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. We are in danger of seeing philosophers who doubt the law of gravity as being merely a fancy of their own. Scoffers of old time were too proud to be convinced, but these are too humble to be con convinced. So basically for Chesterton, this, um, this virtue of intellectual humility or modesty um, is the one that has outgrown the other virtues and has become a vice. So, and I want, I want to make the point that of course, Chesterton is not saying that we should uh, be intellectually prideful, that we should be sure of ourselves. Um, the whole last chapter was kind of um, a critique of those who were so certain of their own circular reasoning that they couldn't break out of the bounds and realize that life could not be contained in their own heads. The very nature of the madman is that he's stuck in the intellectual circle. Um, but what Chesterton is trying to do is to say that if we think that there is no kind of truth that we can even reason towards, it kind of stops short of the ability to think critically about anything. I think what he wants to address is he wants to make it possible for us to be intellectually humble while also saying that that humility 
is one that's willing to be taught, that is willing to believe. It's like that beautiful passage. And the last chapter, where he talks about the sane man, and he says, oh, let me find it. I'm going through all my marked up notes. He says, he's talking about the ordinary man, and he says, he has always left himself free to doubt his gods, but unlike the agnostic of today, free also to believe in them. And I think that Chesterton's pointing out really with this, that there is in that humility, it's a little bit of a false humility, because a humility that is unwilling to ever believe if it is presented with the truth is actually an intellectual pride. It's actually a pride in believing I will never find the truth. Um, the truth can never have any own ownership over me. I will never make that final leap. Um, and so it's really not a humility, even while claiming this kind of permanent agnosticism. So then Chesterton in this chapter sets out to figure out how did we get to this point? How did we get to the overemphasis of intellectual humility to the point where we cannot say anything is true? Um, and that is what he traces through in this chapter. And the problem, which he kind of traces and then looks at in the thought of Nietzsche and Tolstoy and various other people, is that we have lost kind of the backdrop which even allows us to think. And the way you could understand this is to say that Chesterton says this, the whole point of this is that he's trying to build his own personal philosophy. And that personal philosophy presumably would match or correspond or relate to some things that are true about reality. Um, whether that reality happened to be an evolutionary, purely biological one, or one in which God existed. But the problem is, is that to think to that, you have to believe that there is some kind of reality that exists that we are straining to comprehend and, and uh, correlate our lives with. And that is a little bit of a matter of faith, even beginning there. To believe that we are trying to reason towards a reality begins with the faith, faith that there is a reality or a truth or principles or virtues that we can reason towards. And what, what Chesterton really says is that we have cut ourselves short because in the modern world, we are not even certain that there is something that we're, we're arguing or straining ourselves towards. Um, and he has this great passage where he says that even the act of thinking requires this faith to begin with. He writes, reason itself is a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. If you're merely a skeptic, you must sooner or later ask yourself the question, why should anything go right, even observation and deduction? Why should not good logic be as misleading as bad logic? They are both the movements in the brain of a bewildered ape. The young skeptic says, I have the right to think for myself, but the old skeptic, the complete skeptic says, I have no right to think for myself. I have no right to think at all. And the reason that he's setting this up is he's wanting us to get to a point where we admit that to have any kind of conversations or rational conversations about getting to a philosophy that might correspond with reality, we have to believe that there is a reality to correspond with. There are certain things that are true about the universe that we live in. There are certain things that are true about human nature. But even that kind of belief that there's a reality to strain towards is something that you can't prove and that's something that has to begin resting upon a faith that there is something to strain towards. And this is interesting. Lewis makes a really similar argument, um, probably drawing from Chesterton because he was very inspired by him, in The Abolition of Man, where he talks about how when we try to argue towards a morality, we have to believe that there is something like morality to begin with <clears throat> to strain towards. And so he says, 
Um, you know, when you look through all the different traditions of morality and religions throughout the world, a man may say that he can have one wife or seven, but he doesn't say he can have any wife he wants. Uh, and that's the sense of saying we may disagree on how we can apply rules of morality or uh, what it would look like to what those rules may be, but we all have this sense that there's something that we're straining towards. There are some eternal um, values or ways that the world simply is that we can either grow closer to or further away from. And that we, as we think and we reason, we are trying to get to a point where we can align ourselves with reality, where we can um, orient ourselves around what is actually true about the world that we live in. And what Chesterton basically says is that the modern world has cut itself off at the feet when it comes to reasoning in this way, because it's given up the belief that there is any kind of reality that we can reason towards. It's given up the ability to rest on that unprovable but necessary foundation of thought, which is that there are some kind of values, some reality towards which we can strain and orient ourselves around. And the result of this is that for lack of something that we're straining towards, we begin just to value the straining itself, whether that is will, as we could see in the work of Nietzsche, or, um, or reason, as we could see in the work of someone like Kant. So let me explain what I mean by that. So Nietzsche, um, who of course is the famous, uh, perhaps the most famous and most foundational uh, 19th century atheist, and the whole uh, idea behind Nietzsche is that there's no such thing as good or evil. There are only, um, there's really only power and weakness. And so the thing that he values most highly, this is a very kind of crude dumbing down of Nietzsche, but you'll get the idea, is the ability to act and to dominate. And so he values the will over anything else. But what, uh, what Chesterton is saying is that that's a silly thing to do. If you're valuing the will purely for its ability to will something, uh, then you're not actually valuing the will for what it does because the will chooses, the will does specific actions. It closes in on something. Uh, and so to value will at large without some, some point towards which it chooses or doesn't choose is actually not to understand what the will does. And the same thing is true of reason. Um, he says, and he talks a lot about the, kind of the free thought, that um, people wonder what will happen when we finally can have free thought. But he said the very point of thinking is not just to think, uh, but to think in such a way that you grasp or understand what is true about reality. And as a really good example of this, Emma, who is one of the most faithful commenters and readers, I always enjoy your thoughts, and you, you said recently um, in the comments on last week's chapter that you read an article about how, um, about why it is that really intelligent people often hold really zany, wonky um, views, things that seem to be obviously untrue. And you suggested that the article suggested, or one of you suggested, that the reason for this is that it's an overvaluing of the ability to reason without a concern for actually, am I using my reason to come to the truth. So there's, if you're an intelligent person, then one of the funny things about it is that you can use your reason to come up with many defenses, many even rational defenses for what you believe. But that's a misuse of the intellect and of reason because you're acting as though there's not something that we are reasoning towards. And at the heart of this, this is a misunderstanding of the fact that intellect and will are both tools that do something, and they are good in only in so much as they are doing the thing that they are meant to do. And this is what Chesterton sees as being the problem with the modern world. Because we've lost the sense of 
um, there being a truth that we're using our reason to get towards. Because we've lost the idea that there is some kind of moral or natural law that when we act in accordance with it, um, orients us towards righteousness, we now just value the capacity to think or the capacity to choose rather than thinking how do these capacities, um, how could they be virtuously or properly used? Um, so this is a loss of value for valuing reason and will not for their accuracy or goodness, but for their mere function. And um, to kind of help us understand the flip side of that, he says we need to recover an understanding of the centrality of limitation, of it being good that reason should not just be used for anything but for discovering the truth, of um, the idea that it's important that the will doesn't just will anything but that it wills particular things. And that's the very nature of the will. The very nature of willing or choosing something is that you cannot will or choose everything. You only will and choose some things. And so we have to actually limit the horizons of what wills and intellects can do if we are ever to get to a point where we can begin to reason towards, um, towards finding what might be true about the world and about ourselves. And so I'm going to read you this little passage where he talks about, he's kind of refuting Nietzsche and talking about how the very purpose of the will is to choose something, not just that a will can choose anything. And this relates to also to reason. So he says, to desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. That objection, which men of the school used to make um, to an act of marriage, is really an objection to every act. Every act is an irrevocable selection and exclusion. Just as when you marry one woman, you give up all the others, so when you take one course of action, you give up all other courses. If you become the king of England, you give up the post of Beadle and Brompton. If you go to Rome, you sacrifice a rich and suggestive life in Wimbledon. So in his trademarkly funny way, uh, Chesterton is trying to show that the value of the will is not merely its function, its ability to will things, but its ability to will specific things, to, to hone in, and that's the very nature of the will. And then he does this again when he talks about revolutionaries and how true revolution um, rests upon a limitation of the intellect, a limitation to believe that some things are true, um, because otherwise you begin to shut down even the ability to be convicted about anything. He says the Jacobin, who which would have been um, one of the people in the French Revolution, could tell you not only the system he would rebel against, but what was more important, the system that he would not rebel against, the system he would trust. But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty and therefore cannot be a revolutionist. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine which he denounces it. So what he's saying basically is that to have a strong conviction about anything always has an underpinning conviction about what is true about the world and what is the right way to act in response to that world. And as our, um, as our world increasingly disbelieves the idea that there is, that there are good, right, and wrong ways to act, we kind of cut off our ability to have those convictions at all. Um, so uh, he writes, a Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. So basically what he's saying is based on these materialist ideas that ideas of morality come from nothing other than uh, predispositions, 
he says that you may be a really wonderful person and want to not um, want for policemen not to kill peasants, and so they should not. But then if you go back and say, but there is no moral foundation for this, there is no value that's ringing behind this, this cause, then you are basically saying that the peasant should be killed. Uh, and he says, a man denounces marriage as a lie, and then denounces the aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. He calls a flag a bauble, and then blames the oppressors of Poland uh, and Ireland because they take away that bauble. The man of the school goes to political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they are beasts, but then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. So I hope what you're getting, beginning to see is that he's saying by undermining the idea that there are values, principles, some truth towards which we are straining, we've lost even the ability to reason um, very strongly or very well. And basically what Chesterton is saying is that all of those inclinations towards revolt have at their core, even if it's unconscious, a conviction about what is true about the world um, or what is moral or right. And rather humorously, he points this out by saying, when little boys in the street laugh at the fatness of some distinguished journalist, they're unconsciously assuming the standard of a Greek sculpture. So when he looks at the modern world, he says, when we have all these moral outrages and these senses of what's right and wrong, which all of us have, whether we're atheists or agnostics or Christians, they're all presupposing an ideal or a value towards which we're straining, even if we don't know how to strain towards it perfectly. Also, this example is particularly funny because Chesterton himself was a distinguished journalist who happened to be rather fat. And so he's actually having a bit of self-deprecation here. And um, what's interesting then is that he compares this to humor and he says Nietzsche had some natural talent for sarcasm. He could sneer though he couldn't laugh. And the reason he's saying this is that he's saying that laughing at something, we laugh at things because they are not as they should be, which assumes that there is a way things should be. That there are values that are true, even if we have difficulty getting at them. And so he says Nietzsche could never really laugh. He could only sneer because he didn't believe that there truly were values um, or truths that were hanging behind the things that we were trying to get at. So this, for Chesterton, is the heart of the problem with our overgrown attitude of intellectual humility in the modern world. We have lost a belief that there is some kind of truth or value or even just a reality that we seek to understand and discover. And so we've come to value the function of reason over its capacity to get us at the truth. It's like we've come to see tools as value, valuable simply for being tools rather than being uh, valuable for what they can accomplish. So I value my coffee maker because it makes me coffee. This is its supreme and excellent um, telos. This, its end is to make me coffee. I don't value the coffee maker simply because it is a coffee maker that can do some things. I value it because of what it accomplishes, what its fitting and proper end is. And so what I think that Chesterton is trying to do is get us to a place where we understand that we must use reason for something. And the very heart of reason implies that there is a truth, a reality that we're trying to get at. And that if we don't have that end in mind, then the tools become useless in our hands.
So he ends the chapter um, by talking about kind of the futility of all of this. And he describes it as having, um, as, as almost being able to see a train wreck from above. He says, uh, I can see the inevitable smash of the philosophies of Schopenhauer and Tolstoy and Nietzsche and Shaw as clearly as an inevitable railway smash could be seen from a balloon. They're all on the road to emptiness of the asylum. But he ends this chapter on a hopeful note, which is by describing what for him would be the beautiful and fruitful use of the will and of the intellect, of someone who used these to do what they were meant to do rather than simply valuing them for their capacity to be used at all. And this example for him is that of Joan of Arc. Uh, and he's describing her in comparison to Nietzsche and Tolstoy in this section. Joan, when I came to think of her, had in her all that was true in either Tolstoy or Nietzsche, and all that was even tolerable in either of them. I thought of all that is noble in Tolstoy, the pleasure in plain things, especially in plain pity, the actualities of the earth, the reverence for the poor, the dignity of the bowed back. Joan of Arc had all that, and with this great addition, that she endured poverty as well as admiring it, whereas Tolstoy is only a typical aristocrat trying to find out its secret. And then I thought of all that was brave and proud and pathetic in poor Nietzsche, and his mutiny against the emptiness and timidity of our time. I thought of his cry for ecstatic equilibrium of danger, his hunger for the rush of great horses, his cried arms. Well, Joan of Arc had all that, and again with this difference, that she did not praise fighting, but fought. We know that she was not afraid of an army, while Nietzsche, for all we know, was afraid of a cow. Tolstoy only praised the peasant, she was the peasant. Nietzsche only praised the warrior, she was the warrior. She beat them both at their own antagonist ideals. She was more gentle than the one and more violent than the other. Yet she was a perfectly practical person who did something, while they are wild spectators who do nothing. It was impossible that this thought should not cross my mind that she and her faith perhaps had some secret of moral unity and utility that had been lost. And with that thought came a larger one. The colossal figure of her master had also crossed the theater of my mind. And this is where we were reminded that Chesterton is still telling the story of his own belief. So I think that in a lot of this, what he's describing is not just a blistering critique of modernism. It's his own experience with the emptiness of it and the kind of circles that it led his own thought in. And when he found Joan of Arc, he saw someone who used her intellect for something. It wasn't merely a tool. It was a tool that did something good and fruitful and who used her will in a good and fruitful way. But using it had to be coincided with this belief that there is a proper or fitting way to use the intellect, that we are straining towards truth, uh, and that there is values, a unity in morality and intellect. The intellect is not good simply because it can think, but because it can think about the truth. And the will is not good simply because it can will things, but because it can will the right things. And so the question then becomes, what are the right things? What is the truth? How can we use these tools well? And that is the story of the rest of the book. Now, I want to take a deep breath and say, first of all, thank you for sticking with me through this section. I hope that you've learned something. I hope that I've given you at least a few nuggets that have helped you grow. 
I hope also that you'll be gracious with me because it has been a wild uh, week and I have thought a lot about this, but I also know that my intellect is a little bit like scrambled eggs at the moment. Uh, so I hope that this has been helpful in some way. And I thought I would just leave you all with the three things that kind of struck me from this chapter, my three takeaways. Uh, and the first was the idea of imbalanced virtues. I think that this is a really useful idea. The idea that we can allow one virtue to become overgrown in a way that it becomes um, actually a vice. This is something that really stuck out to me because I think that it has a personal significance for me and then I can also see it playing out in, um, in a societal way. So for me, I think um, I could be someone who would have the virtue, for instance, of, of fortitude. I can push on, I can do more, I can try hard. Um, but I have seen that become a vice in my life when it is not balanced with prudence. Um, with an ability to know when it is wise to work hard and when it is wise to rest. Um, and so I think it's a funny thing to have gotten out of this chapter, but I think that thinking about that, uh, thinking about what are the areas in my life that may be a virtue, but that without a development of other virtues in my life may kind of uh, become overgrown and become a vice. And I think we can see that on a social level as well. Um, there are some people who so highly value um, mercy um, that they lose their ability to care about truth or about justice. However, on the other side, there are those who so value truth or rightness that they lose their ability to have mercy or compassion. And I think that if we are not developing both of these muscles, um, and if we're not developing uh, in, in conversation with each other, we can become imbalanced and become actually vicious where we were meant to be virtuous. And I think that's a good reminder from Chesterton. The second thing that really struck out to me was the idea of the intellect or the will being instruments, things that are used for something. And I think, I mean, I've already really talked a lot about this, but I think that it's really easy and I think that we do in our world value, um, and this can actually happen in academia a lot, the ability to think over the ability to use our thoughts to get to the right place. Intelligence does nothing if it doesn't bring us towards the truth. And pure activity does nothing if it is not good activity. And so I think thinking more about what is the intellect for? What is uh, our will for? And then striving to use them, not just to use them as instruments, but to use them as instruments and use them well. The third thing that I think um, was really important to me and that stuck out to me was the importance of limitation. And I think that uh, it's interesting. I think in many ways, Chesterton was very prescient and his ability to see that uh, we would become less and less happy with the idea of choosing or limiting or making things um, selective. And I think though that what Chesterton shows us is that by not choosing, by not limiting, we actually are limiting ourselves to um, this kind of detached intellect or a detached um, detached life. I think that when you don't let yourself be limited and choose certain things, you actually are not allowing yourself to grow. I think that if you never planted a, a plant, it will eventually die. So in that sense, you're never choosing it. Uh, you're never choosing a bed for the plant to be planted in, which really means that you are choosing for the plant to die. And I think that we need to be intentional about our lives, about not avoiding the necessity of limitation. And rather than uh, simply resting and not limiting ourselves. We need to put our minds to where can we limit in good ways. So that's a lot of rambling uh, and those are my thoughts for this week. I am really excited about next week because it's one of my favorite chapters.
uh, and I've used it in a lot of writing of my own, in my own academic writing and popular writing. So I can't wait to share it with you. So if you're thinking, oh, this book, it's too hard. I'm not going to stick around. Stick around till next week because it's a great chapter and I think you'll love it. And it gets more into Chesterton's personal life. So um, best wishes. Also, I have to say I'm laughing at me and Joel because we literally spent all day moving today and I just recorded this podcast and Joel just released an album. And I wanted to take a moment to remind you all to go look at it. Go to joelclarkson.com forward slash store. I think you'll find it there. Uh, but because it's this wonderful album of music that's written for reading. It's called The Storybook, uh, something about the storybook. Uh, but it's fully, or it's like full orchestral pieces that all are kind of written to remind you of, of stories, of moments, um, written for reading, for writing, for studying for road trips and um it's truly truly magical and you'll want to play it all the time it'll also be on spotify so go find that look up joel clarkson or go to his website uh because in the midst of both recording this podcast and packing we are also uh releasing an album well he's releasing an album uh anyway much love to all of you and i cannot wait to hear your thoughts thanks for listening and i'll talk to you soon bye